Welcome to Fertile Minds Radio. Here you'll find wisdom for your fertility journey and beyond, chosen specifically to help you trust your body and elevate your spirit so you can enjoy the process. Join us and see what a fertile mind feels like. Now your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. This podcast is a proud member of Parents on Demand, a network of high-quality shows for families just like yours. Download our free network app on Apple and Android and listen to your favorite episodes on the go. Hey there, Hillary here, your go-to gal to help you form a plan to reclaim your fertility and create a healthy family for generations to come, all while staying sane along the way. Today's episode is brought to you by my seven-day fertility reset. All you need to do is go to Instagram, Lady Potions for You handle, and click the link in the bio to sign up. We'll have seven days of meditation and self-care practices guaranteed to take you out of a fast-paced world and help you drop into yourself. I hope you'll join me for this transformative week. It's all in honor of Infertility Awareness Week. So today's show is definitely jam-packed with a ton of information. It's taken me quite a while to write it. It's got over 20 references, but that's because it's such a complex subject and it's endometriosis. So even if you don't have a diagnosis of endometriosis, you'll want to listen because there are a lot of cases out there that I suspect in terms of fertility where endometriosis is the culprit. And it's kind of elusive because getting a diagnosis can take really, really long. As you'll hear later in the episode, the average time for a woman to get diagnosed with it properly is nine years. Yes, nine years. So today we're going to talk about the theories behind its evolution and why it's increasing, why it takes so long to diagnose it, and how it could be impacting your fertility negatively, what the complications are that you need to know in terms of your long-term health and how to manage it, even if we're not talking about fertility, and how it can affect you when you do get pregnant if it's not managed before. And lastly, how to manage it naturally and what your treatment options are from an Eastern and a Western perspective. So let's get started. Oh, and before I forget, if you need to reference all of this, you can always find it in the show notes. But in the show notes, you notice that we do timestamps. So there is uh, an intricate blog post as well. If you just scroll down on the homepage of ladypotions.com under blog or just search for endometriosis, both of them will come up so that you don't have to feel like you need to write all of this down. So just take a listen and then circle back around to take what you need from this episode. So what is endometriosis? Several Western medical textbooks defined endometriosis as the following. It's an estrogen-dependent benign inflammatory disease that affects women during their pre-menarchal, reproductive, and post-menopausal hormonal stages. So that just means that it can be with you at any time, not just necessarily when you're cycling, although it is more common when you are having a period. It is characterized by the presence and growth of endometrial tissue in locations outside of the uterus. So what that means is the tissue that would normally make your period or your menses migrates outside of the uterus and begins to grow or proliferate. These endometrial growths are typically seen on the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, the bowel, the bladder, peritoneal tissue, the ligaments, and other structures of the abdominal cavity. And it's also rare, but possible that these growths occur outside the abdominal cavity, 
the endometrial tissues outside of the uterus respond to the hormonal changes in your body, just like it would if it were in the uterine lining with the reaction of growing and then shedding. And when they shed, they cause bleeding. And anytime you get blood in the peritoneal cavity, it causes intense irritation and then systemic inflammation as a result. So if you have suffered any symptoms of endometriosis or suspect that you have, you will certainly find the irony in the word benign in this definition because benign means meaning kindly or gentle, not harmful or not malignant. And there is seemingly nothing gentle or kind when it comes to your symptoms of endo if you're having it. And if you're trying to conceive with a history of diagnosed or suspect endometriosis, it can seem really harmful to your fertility. So I think that that word is a little off in the definition. So there are four stages of endometriosis. You might hear people refer to them as one through four. And really that just depends on how ingrained the disease is, how filmy the adhesions are, and how dense they are. And I want to talk about now is some of the stats behind endometriosis, which will really kind of help you understand why it's so difficult to diagnose. The least biased estimate of the occurrence of endometriosis is that it affects approximately 1 in 10 women of reproductive age, which is approximately 176 million women in the world. It is considered one of the most common gynecological problems in the U.S. and a leading gynecological cause of both hospitalization and hysterectomy. This may be a conservative number due to the fact that so many diagnoses of teenage girls are missed, either due to MDs normalizing menstrual cramps and pelvic pain as part of a woman's journey, as well as a systematic dispensing of oral contraceptives that masks some of the symptoms. All too often, it's only after coming off birth control wishing to conceive and trying relentlessly to get pregnant that the endometriosis is discovered. Studies have shown that the delay from 3 to 11 years between the onset of symptoms are the final diagnosis of endometriosis with an average of 9.28 years before receiving a proper diagnosis. The key contributor to this delay are not only those things that I mentioned above, but the fact that the symptoms of endometriosis overlap with other conditions leading to a misdiagnosis. Women with endo are 3.5 times more likely to receive a diagnosis of IBS or irritable bowel syndrome or IBD, irritable bowel dysfunction. Women are also six times more likely to have been diagnosed with PID, pelvic inflammatory disease, and not actual endo. In affected women, infertility has a 30% rate of prevalence and endometriosis implants increase the risk of ovarian cancer. And that's not to scare you, but I want you to understand that long-term, while those lesions may be benign, they increase your risks and other comorbidities, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So initially, endometriosis was related or thought to come from what's called retrograde menstruation or menstrual blood basically flowing up into the pelvic cavity instead of out. But new theories have been launched suggesting that chronic inflammation can influence the development of endometriosis because inflammatory mediators have been identified and are elevated in patients with endo. The immune system as well as genetic predisposition and epigenetic factors all play important roles in determining whether an individual woman will develop the condition or not. It's currently unknown whether the inflammatory nature is the cause or the consequence of the disease process. Women who develop 
endo often exhibit a hypersensitivity to inflammation across multiple organ systems. It's also been described in the past in the literature as an autoimmune disease, since it often is associated with the presence of autoantibodies, other autoimmune diseases, and possibly recurrent immune-mediated abortion, meaning that you're, when you do get pregnant, you have a higher chance of your immune system than turning on the fetus and causing um, a miscarriage. So really, the, the status of how it happens is not agreed upon. When you look at dozens and dozens, well, actually, there are hundreds and hundreds of studies in the scientific literature, and none of them really agree. And this goes back to this theory that I have about the nervous system, the endocrine system, and the immune system being a bit like triplets separated at birth. And when one is under duress, whether that's just intense stress affecting the nervous system, or you have a lot of illness that affects the immune system, or you're going through some changes that are natural shifts in the endocrine system, like getting your period or perimenopause, the other two systems can kind of overreact. And when that happens, it kind of sets you up for this cascade of things that are confusing to diagnose because there's so many systems involved. So the take-home message of endometriosis is that there's an inflammatory process that needs to be managed. There's endocrine shifts and abnormalities. And then oftentimes there are immune issues happening at the same time. And we need to kind of reset all three of these systems. That's what we're going to talk about in the root cause of the endo and how to manage it. Now, likely when I go through these different systems, you will identify with the symptoms of one or two systems more than the other. And that's where I suggest that you start with implementing supplements or herbs or lifestyle changes to actually enhance that particular system and see if it brings the others up on board. And if not, you can kind of work your way through these different systems until everything is balanced out. And in my clinical observation, this can take anywhere from three to 12 months to do, depending on how advanced it is and how sensitive the person is and how properly guided they are on picking the right supplements. So what are the factors that would potentially predispose a woman to developing endometriosis? Because not everybody gets it. And like I said, it is on the rise. So what's happening? One of the things that when I hear in a woman's history, when she has some of the symptoms, which we'll talk about in just a minute, that alert me to start looking for it is if she started her period before the age of 12. If her menstrual cycles are short, meaning day one of when you start your period till day one of the next period, that's how you count an entire cycle. If that time is less than 26 days and or the period itself lasts longer than seven days, including spotting, I start to suspect, okay, there might be endometriosis here. I need to start asking questions about inflammatory processes and immunity in her stress levels, as well as environmental risks and exposures. Other contributing factors can be a DNC. So a DNC is something, a procedure that you would get if you had an abortion um, or if you had a miscarriage and you didn't naturally get rid of all of the parts yourself and you needed a little bit of assistance, or maybe you didn't even start that process and you just wanted it over with and you needed um, a surgical procedure for that to happen. And that's because it can cause scarring tissues and it is a little bit of a trauma to the uterus. And when there's trauma 
whether it's from a surgical procedure or something like physical or sexual abuse, that is also seen to be a predisposing factor of developing endometriosis. If a woman has carried less than two pregnancies, it's also thought to predispose you to endometriosis. And the reason behind that is that when you're pregnant, you actually stop menstruating for that time that you're pregnant, the nine months, and then most of the the period when you're breastfeeding. So the less proliferation and growth you have, because remember those lesions are actually affected throughout the body by hormones, just like they would be if they were in your uterus, the less chance it has to grow. So if somebody is pregnant back to back, um, it can help. And you may have even heard that pregnancy is a cure, quote unquote, for endometriosis. And that's because it can really kind of halt that whole process, as well as typically uh, there's a self-protective mode that happens in in many pregnancies where the inflammation markers go down and the immune system is then regulated. So the body has this beautiful way when it's pregnant of kind of normalizing most of those symptoms. Environmental exposures to toxins like flame retardants, endocrine disruptors like fragrance and beauty and cleaning products. If you haven't listened uh, to the episode on clean beauty products, I suggest you that you do that because you can get those out of the way as a a potential trigger. Um, Any exogenous estrogens, so things that come, xenoestrogens that come from plastics and styrofoams and pesticides, GMOs, so genetically modified foods, all of those can disrupt your endocrine system and help endoproliferate. Also chemicals like dioxins, which are um, a derivative of chlorine, that's in all of your tampons, unless you're using natural tampons and pads. It's also found to be in your water. I know where I live, our water is like off the charts in chlorine. So I actually use Berkey filters in all of my um, in my practice, in my house, and even in my shower, because you can actually smell the chlorine coming out of the water. And then other contributing toxins are PCBs and phthalates, which are thought to trigger the onset or the proliferation, or at least kind of drive that hormonal response, causing those lesions to grow. So all things that you have in your control to try and take out of your environment to manage or stop endometriosis from happening. So especially if you know that you have a familial history, meaning your mother had endometriosis or chocolate cysts on her ovaries, or your sister had the same, then you should know that genetics can predispose you to that as well, and that you should be doing everything in your power to stop it from triggering. And then this also goes back to my concept of having a conscious conception, not just meaning that you really, really want to get pregnant, but getting your healthiest prior to falling pregnant so that you don't pass anything on by accident. So let's say that you have endometriosis and it's not well managed. Um, Your chances, if you have a little girl, for her having endometriosis or even your grandchild, because changes in the genetics are actually passed down two generations, not one, you're actually helping your the health of your unborn child as well as your potential grandchildren um, or granddaughters to not have to deal with endometriosis, the more you can clean up your own. So some of the signs and symptoms of endometriosis, which I think are really important to hear because 
again, so many people don't get a proper diagnosis. And one of the reasons for that is that the main way to properly diagnose endometriosis is through laparoscopic surgery. So where they go into the abdomen and they start looking around with a camera, looking for lesions in the wrong place. It's also the surgery. So if they're in there looking around and they see them, they take them out. So you have to have you know, a long history of these symptoms and interventions, usually NSAIDs, something like ibuprofen or aspirin, to show that you've tried to mitigate these responses before then your doctor deems it necessary to go in and have surgery, that it has to be a quality of life issue, even though this could cause infertility and there's a lot of comorbid potential risk factors later on in life that could come from this. And often when I tell a woman the signs and symptoms of endometriosis, it's like light bulbs just start going off or fireworks if she's had a lot of problems because they're looking at me going, I have every single one of those and they didn't know that they were related. Killer cramping at the time of menstrual cycles that won't go away even with NSAIDs like I just mentioned, or even cramping prior to your period where there's no blood flowing or maybe you're spotting a little bit, but you're just like doubled over in pain. That can be a sign periods from hell, as I lovingly call them. They're long and heavy, like I mentioned, seven plus days. And you know, you could be gushing and then trickling with some spotting in the beginning, middle, or end as well. Um, often with chronic and sometimes severe pain between the periods, you might have breakthrough bleeding, meaning that you're bleeding at the time of ovulation or spotting, wondering why am I having a period again in 14 days or that short cycle where you're having them before 26 days. Constipation and bloating, especially if there is involvement with lesions on the rectum, which is common. The bloating that just won't go away. Uh, Maybe it gets a little bit better, but you just feel like you have this pooch all the time, painful sex, urinary problems. It can feel like you have interstitial cystitis or like you're getting a UTI, but then you don't test positive for the UTI. And this is also because the lesions can adhere to the bladder themselves. A lower backache, a lot of times when a woman says that she has cramps with her period, I will inquire, do you cramp in the abdomen, the back, or both? And I find that with endo, there's usually some back involvement with some blood-fed arteries there. There's oftentimes chronic fatigue because you've got all of these systems kind of out of whack, um, causing the, the body overall to just be more tired than normal. There can be pelvic burning There can be aching, not limited to menstruation, where you just feel like your hips are always hurting or referred pain um, down the legs or up into the shoulder blades or the top of the collarbone. Um, And that's one that people go, oh my gosh, I can't even believe that that's related, but I have that pain all the time and I always wondered why. And you'll usually see more intense cases of premenstrual syndrome or PMS. Like I said before, endometriosis is one of the most common causes of infertility. The least biased scientific review I could find said uh, 30% of the cases, but I did see a few others that were speculating as much as 50% of cases. So again, kind of taking that with a grain of salt, but either way, even if we settle somewhere in the middle of 40 or even at the conservative number of 30, that's a lot of women being affected with infertility by something that no one is looking for. Risk factors. 
I have mentioned this up until now. And again, I don't want to scare you, but I want to give you reason to explore this. If you heard those signs and symptoms and you think that this is something that is going on with you, I want you to have some ammunition, not just to get pregnant and have a baby, but we want you to be around for that baby, right? And we want to make sure that you carry to term. So because of its association with chronic systemic inflammation and oxidative stress on the body, it's theorized that there's a link between endo and an elevated risk of atherosclerosis and subsequent coronary heart disease. So that means that you could have higher potential of heart attacks or stroke, especially if that runs in your family on top of endo. This is something that you want to be looking at. Interestingly, there is also an increase in epithelial ovarian cancers with women with a history of endometriosis. Uh, And nearly 8,000 women with EOC that had a self-reported history of endometriosis, they had three times the risk of clear cell EOC or ovarian cancer and double the risk of endometrioid and low-grade serious EOC. So what that means is when it's unchecked, those lesions could certainly um, cause your body to develop ovarian cancer, again, probably because of the increased risk of all of the inflammation and immune system issues that are happening uh, at the same time. There's also a higher risk of hypothyroidism, so your thyroid not functioning quite as well. And again, I think This goes back to how those systems are intimately related, the nervous system, the endocrine system, and the immune system. And when one is way off or two or three are way off, you start seeing um, deficiencies or aggravations in the others. Fibromyalgia, so unexplained pain all over the body, the chronic fatigue that I mentioned, and other autoimmune conditions like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, systemic lupus, multiple sclerosis, sojourns, um, and atopic disease, so meaning skin issues, are more significantly common in women with endometriosis in the general U.S. population. So hives, urticaria, unexplained itching, eczema, psoriasis, all of those things can kind of point back to like, why is the skin freaking out? Because your skin is the biggest detoxifying organ in your body. So by the time something gets to the skin, it really alerts me that there is something long-term and big happening inside of the body that needs to be addressed. Um, And we will talk about um, hives and histamine intolerance in a little bit when we get into these root causes as to how that is a major sign and symptom, as well as something that needs to be treated uh, with the endometriosis. So if you're listening to this, you are definitely listening because of your interest in fertility, most likely. And like I said, there are some potential issues with caring to term if endometriosis is unmanaged, meaning you haven't been able to shrink the lesions themselves, either through uh, Western treatment strategies like surgery or botanical treatments that we're going to talk about here in a minute. And some of these studies that kind of show this, I just want to run through them real quick to give you the perspective. Again, I'm not trying to scare you, but there are some large numbers in these studies. 
In a retrospective population-based study of over 82,000 singleton pregnancies, meaning 82,000 women who had one baby inside them, endometriosis was associated with an increased risk of preterm birth, meaning they didn't make it long-term, preeclampsia, and cesarean delivery compared to women who had no endometriosis. So remember that preterm birth, preeclampsia, and associated with immunologic dysregulation. So like I mentioned, the immune system early on turning on the fetus, um, preeclampsia, which can actually cause death if that is unmanaged in the mother, and then preterm birth. So your baby coming out before it is ready to, before it has a chance to develop all of its organs and having um, its first few weeks spent in the NICU is not a way that anybody wants to start if they can help it. So this is really important to think about when getting pregnant. If you know that you have endometriosis, you know, maybe gift yourself three to six months to really go full force into diet and lifestyle things that we're going to talk about as well as supplements to try and shrink your lesions. And the way that you'll know that that's happening, you don't have to have laparoscopic surgery to go in and look around is, are your symptoms dissipating? If they are, because there are so many of them across so many systems in the body, you can pretty much guarantee that the lesions themselves are shrinking. And the lesions do shrink and grow on their own. In fact, when you go in and you look at women with endo, it's almost unpredictable as how these things happen. And again, I think that a lot of that has to do with environmental triggers, but then there's so many other variables of what we're putting in our body. Are we regulating the nervous system? Are we regulating our diet? And are we using botanicals that have been shown to shrink these lesions? This can not only help you to get pregnant, but to stay pregnant and then to have a healthier child, which in my mind is definitely the trifecta. That's what we want to see happen, okay? So the root cause approaches, if you listen to my episode on PCOS, you know that I've been in this really intense 10-month CME with Dr. Aviva Ram, which has been amazing. And she's really helped me to define the root cause approach to treating these ailments in addition to using my traditional Chinese medicine approach. So I'm going to run through this with you today because I feel like it's a really easy way to understand why we're treating what we're treating. So the first thing that I think we need to address is pain management because that's the most common symptom that I see that alerts somebody to the fact that they have endo. It's also a quality of life issue. And I think that it's intimately related with the nervous system. So the more stressed we are, the more pain we have, the more chronic it is, the less we're able to tolerate it. Um, And then the more that we manage our nervous system with stress reduction techniques, the less pain that we can have, as well as it could potentially stop the lesions from overgrowing. So these two things go hand in hand. You know I'm big on mindfulness and meditation. So in the show notes, there is actually a link to what's called a Saivite meditation, which is this lovely meditation that actually you kind of go into your body, into your nervous system with the goal of reducing pain. And it's pretty amazing the sensations that you can make happen within your own body or reduce. Uh, So people with pain love this meditation. Uh, It's something that you can do with acute pain or as a preventative. 
Some of the botanicals that I like for managing the pain of endometriosis are devil's claw. Um, You don't want to use this though in the luteal phase if you are trying to conceive because it has a blood thinning property to it and that could potentially interfere with implantation or caring. So you certainly don't want to use it when you're pregnant, but if you wanted to use it during your menses, Uh, to stop the pain and cramping, you could safely do that. It's been used in Western herbal medicine for over a century to alleviate pain and inflammation associated with arthritis, headaches, and back pain. And a recent study in the treatment of endometriosis symptoms showed that all patients felt better initially and that the treatment improved symptoms overall and quality of life after eight weeks. So eight weeks, two months, with a dose of 400 milligrams four times a day. So they were taking it quite regularly and at a moderate dose, I think around 2000 is the high end of that dose. And they were consuming about 1600 milligrams total in a day, help their quality of life and their endometrial symptoms. So again, then maybe making the postulation that the lesions are shrinking. Another one that I use in my practice all the time is ginger root powder. I find that this is really helpful instead of NSAIDs. And the dose for the ginger is 500 milligrams, two to four times a day as needed to reduce the pain. And if you've heard me talk about ibuprofen before uh, or Advil, you know that it has detrimental effects on thinning the gut lining, which can then cause your immune system to go a little bit wacky. So preventing the immune system from getting involved by what medicines we choose to affect our pain can be a treatment as well. I suggest that you take the ginger daily and then a few days prior and during your menses, okay, for the best relief. It does help if you take it during the period for the pain, but if you can take it um, just prior you'll have better results with it. Now, if you're doing IVF, you want to clearly stop using ginger after the transfer of an embryo, or you want to also stop it as soon as you become pregnant, whether that's with IVF or naturally, okay? Your dose should never exceed 1,000 milligrams in a day either. One other supplement for managing the pain and the nervous system that I like is melatonin. And melatonin, you might have heard for sleep, and you're thinking, well, why does this have to do with pain? Sometimes the pain is so severe with endometriosis that it wakes women up. There's also this beautiful aspect of melatonin where it acts as a natural detoxifier. And so with all of this inflammation associated with it, I think it really gets at the root cause. And if it is helping your sleep, it is definitely helping your nervous system because the more rested you are, the more online your nervous system is the following day. So the dose would be one to three milligrams, though you can go up to 10 milligrams a night. One to three milligrams seems to be the sweet spot for enhancing fertility um, as well as not giving you um, a sleep hangover the next day. So I will tell a lot of women, if you're really struggling with insomnia on top of it, to just start with 2.5 milligrams. And then um, if you need another dose, take another dose. But most women don't have to go over three. I like the Pure Encapsulations brand and liquid. It tastes good. It's easy to diagnose or easy to administer. You just put it under your tongue and keep it on your nightstand. It's brilliant. 
And then another category of herbs that helps the nervous system are adaptogens. I did a whole episode on adaptogens. They're some of my favorite to use in the treatment of uh, fertility challenges, trying to get a nervous system leveled out and really nourish a man or a woman's body to become pregnant. Because when every when our nervous system is calm, that's when it's broadcasting the message to the rest of ourselves that it's a safe place to, in fact, fall pregnant. So some of my favorite of the adaptogens are Eulothro when it comes to treating endometriosis, um, as well as the medicinal mushrooms. So reishi, which is a great one for um, sleep as well as energy during the day. Cordyceps, um, I absolutely love, especially in men. It helps them with sperm production. Um, If you're working out, it helps you to feel like you can get a nice big deep breath and not tire through your respiratory system and to just breathe deeper during the day so that you feel more energized just from the simple act of breathing. So again, adaptogens are great. If you follow me on Instagram, you see that I do tout a lot of uh, Aviva's blends, her adaptogenic blends, the Nourish, the Uplift, and the Soothe. Um, So the Nourish and the Soothe would probably be best in this case. Okay, the second root cause system that needs to be addressed is the endocrine system, obviously, right? There's a huge imbalance in the hormones when we're dealing with endometriosis. And we also need to avoid exposure to chemicals and foods that alter hormonal function. In endometriosis, there's also the thought that there is a problem detoxifying in the body, usually in the second phase of detoxification within the liver. And so it's really important to make sure that that part of the body is working well, um, not only by decreasing the estrogen burden with exogenous exposures, but also just making sure that our body is eliminating properly, that our bowels are moving. And we can do that by using a few botanicals that kind of push our bodies to lightly detoxify themselves. So I mentioned the melatonin, but another one that you can use and that I use most often in my practice when someone has diagnosed or suspected endometriosis is N-acetylcysteine or also known as NAC. It's the precursor to glutathione and glutathione is one of the most important detoxifying pathways in our body. And if you're not producing enough to keep up with the demands from the chronic exposure of environmental toxins or the overproduction of our own hormones, because keep in mind, these lesions are packed full of hormones. So when when they do break down, they release all these hormones into our body, which kind of then can perpetuate the cycle if we're not detoxifying the body at the same time. And NAC is really impressive for getting rid of estrogen specifically, which in endometriosis, we usually see um, signs of estrogen dominance, meaning more estrogen than progesterone. We also see some sensitivity issues with progesterone, maybe the body reacting to it that I won't go into. It's a little in-depth for this episode, but the NAC can absolutely help with that. Some studies that have shown impressive data are uh, a study of 92 women in 2013, 47 of them took NAC and 42 took a placebo. Of those who took 600 milligrams of NAC three times a day, three consecutive days of each week for three months, 24 patients canceled their scheduled laparoscopy due to a decrease in the disappearance of endometriosis, improved pain reduction, or because they had gotten pregnant. So half of the group that took the NAC, one quarter of the entire number of participants, either got pregnant or canceled their laparoscopy. 
14 of those 47 women who took the NAC had decreased ovarian cysts on an ultrasound. Eight of those 47 had a complete disappearance of their symptoms and lesion, complete disappearance. And 21 had pain reduction. And then in the control group, only one person, out of 42 in the control, became pregnant. And only one canceled their surgery. And there were four endometriomas that disappeared. Remember I said that the lesions can actually wax and wane on their own. But when you look at the control compared to botanical intervention, you can see that using something that helps break down the estrogen as well as detoxify the body is clearly a better option. And they only had to take it for three months. So in my practice, I actually will prescribe it at 600 milligrams in the morning and 1200 milligrams at night because that's when the liver is the most active, at least according to traditional Chinese medicine. So I like to give it a little boost when it's doing its work. I think of it like extra like Gatorade almost to help out that liver. Um, And then I will prescribe it either for three months. Like let's say we have three months to work before a woman says, okay, I'm going to start trying to conceive again, or I'm going to enter into an IVF cycle. We'll use it continually in those three months. Or if I'm just treating endometriosis, I might cycle it six weeks on, six weeks off. Or if the person is really deficient, I might only prescribe it in the spring and the fall. And that's because in traditional Chinese medicine, it's thought that the body just naturally has an ability to detoxify better in the spring and the fall. So again, you definitely want to stop taking this when you do fall pregnant, Um, or if you are in an IVF cycle, you want to stop taking this as soon as you start any kind of meds, not just in meds, but um, if they're down-regulating you on birth control, you don't want to interfere with that. Um, Another supplement for helping to detoxify the body uh, is alpha-lipoic acid, and I like this if you're trying to get pregnant because there's also some evidence to show that alpha lipoic acid may enhance egg quality as well. So if we can enhance egg quality, especially if you're advanced maternal age and detoxify the body and potentially help with your endometriosis, helping you to have um, hold a pregnancy, why not, right? This is a great supplement to include on the for those purposes. Um, Another overall detoxifying formula that I like is by Innate Response, and that has some milk thistle, uh, some NAC in it as well, and a myriad of other botanicals that just gently detoxify the body like dandelion, and that could be really helpful. Two other botanicals that could be helpful in reducing inflammation in the body, because that's another kind of root or pillar that we want to address uh, when we're talking about treating endometriosis, are curcumin. So you might know curcumin by its other name, turmeric. Curcumin is really important. Um, I will prescribe that with women trying to conceive. However, I typically only use it in the follicular cycle. So meaning as soon as you get to your fertile window, I have you stop the curcumin because it has a little bit of a blood thinning property to it, which is what we want for the endometriosis, but that could interfere with implantation. Implantation by itself is actually requires a little bit of inflammation. It's kind of a sticky process. Like all of these cells have to kind of stick together, but not overcoagulate. And so I will typically err on the side of caution and tell them to stop curcumin once they get to the fertile window, unless you have something like a known issue or problem with clotting. 
Reservatrol, it is a plant estrogen. It's a compound that has anti-proliferative, meaning it's going to stop those lesions from growing as well as anti-inflammatory actions. And it's found in a lot of dietary sources such as grapes, wine, peanuts, soy, berries. So definitely don't knock back a bottle of wine if you're trying, but a good quality pesticide-free glass of red wine here and there is going to have enough reservatol in it to actually be anti-inflammatory. Um, and again, you can use things like grapes and berries. That's why we, um, and they're found in the peel of those. That's where the, the reservatol is actually the heaviest and gives it their beautiful color. So including those into your diet in a daily fashion is an excellent way to cut down on pill burden and not have to take something as a supplement, but to get it in your diet. And I'm not always sold on um, Reservatol maintaining its potency in a pill form. I think that it is best assimilated in the body as a food. And then finally, one other is, um, I never say this right, you're going to laugh at me, Pycnogenol, which is a derivative of pine. And in, in one study with women with surgically diagnosed endometriosis, a treatment with this substance actually slowly but steadily reduced symptom scores. So it's probably better in patients that have mild to medium lesions, or let's say if you did have laparoscopic surgery and you didn't want it to return, but you just wanted a mild daily anti-inflammatory, this would be something that you could look for. Other ways to uh, decrease inflammation are certainly diet and exercise. So in diet, we want to make sure that there's enough essential fatty acids by increasing omega-3 fatty foods and reducing trans fats. So trans fats consumption appears to increase the risk of endometriosis. And a lot of Americans, if you're, t if you're eating a typical American diet, your ratio of omega-6s to 3s is too high, meaning you're getting too many of the inflammatory fats instead of the clean, good-for-you fats. Um, other things that are really instrumental to do in your diet are avoiding caffeine and alcohol as those are possible risk uh, reducing factors. Uh, Gluten-free diet may decrease painful symptoms of endometriosis. So if you know or suspect that you have a gluten intolerance or if you've had leaky gut, I definitely recommend taking gluten out. Um, Mediterranean-style plant-based diet uh, will also reduce systemic inflammation. So Mediterranean diet being mostly plant-based, but then high in the good fats um, and particularly seafood. Increasing dietary fiber to optimize the gut microbiome and to support healthy estrogen levels is really helpful. One thing that I like is flaxseed in your diet. So if you do smoothies, inc including fresh ground flaxseed, so you get it whole and keep it in the refrigerator and then just throw it in the blender with your smoothie and um, hopefully with lots of berries and grapes. And that will uh, break it down and make it more bioly available to you. And the flaxseed actually helps take the xenoestrogens out of your body. And then just the increase in the fiber, having the whole plant in a smoothie versus juice can help to be an anti-inflammatory. Other aspects that help to enhance detoxification uh, with the diet are including lots of sulfur-containing vegetables um, in the family of broccoli. So broccoli, turnips, my personal favorite, Brussels sprouts, <laughs> and cauliflower. All of those um, have a natural detoxifying process in the body. Um, kale can also help with that as well. 
So you can see that there's a lot of things that you can do in diet. It's typically recommended that high amounts of dairy and animal product are taken out of the diet and that when you do eat them, that you are clear that there have been no hormones added to it, no genetically modified food fed to the animal because it's not that you are what you eat anymore. It's you are what you eat ate. So if the cow or the chicken was fed a bunch of genetically modified corn, you are then going to get that pesticide in your body as well as um, any antibiotics that were used in the genetic modification. And like we said previously, those things can be a huge trigger for endometriosis. Exercise is another kind of odd paradigm when it comes to endometriosis. It's really helpful for decreasing inflammation, but the type of exercise and the amount has to be on par, meaning that if you overdo it with exercise, you can actually increase inflammation because you're, you're going to break down protein in the muscles if you're overtraining or you're doing heavy, heavy lifting. And that can be especially detrimental if you're dealing with something like um, histamine intolerance, which we'll get to in just a second. But exercise has been shown in multiple studies uh, to help decrease the endometrial growth. So finding a good balance of light cardiovascular exercise or mind-body practices like yoga is something that I typically recommend. And oddly, one of the risk factors that we see with endometriosis, and this is kind of paradoxical to what we usually see in um, chronic disease patterns, because we usually think of a high BMI or your body mass index being problematic for most uh, gynecological issues. But with endometriosis, um, a low BMI was actually found to have higher rates of endometrial tissue where it shouldn't be. So if you're underweight and you're having these symptoms, that's just one more reason to approach your herbalist or your primary care provider or your OB with your concerns. So the other piece of the root cause treatment is immunity. You've heard me mention that many times throughout this episode. And what we want to do is we want to improve nonspecific immunity and control or monitor any histamine response. Okay, so if you've had urticaria or hives, which is, you know that it's absolutely maddening, right? You feel like you want to scratch your skin off. But again, this is a sign of something else bigger happening in your body. So with the causes of endometriosis, you see an increase in the immune system, parts like macrophages and dendritic cells and inflammatory cytokines. And then there's also an increase in mast cells. And mast cells are that part of the body that release histamine. So if you are itching at all, if you have hives or a history of hives, this is something that I would definitely take into consideration. And one of the ways that you can do that is through diet. You want to avoid any of the following foods or limit them. Uh, my suggestion is to cut them out completely for four weeks and see if there's a reduction in, in your symptoms in your next period or PMS. And then you can slowly start to bring these back in one at a time if you must. So fermented, cured, or soured foods like yogurt. I know we think yogurt's great for us, but sometimes because it's fermented, it can drive this process. Pickles, sour cream, lunch meat is a huge one. So you want to stop grabbing that sandwich. Um, gluten can be huge in people with histamine intolerances. Any aged cheese. So think of like 
Parmesan or something that has been there for a really long time, like blue cheese or gorgonzola, um, smoked fish. Again, that's usually, usually we smoke fish that's been around for a while and we need to cook it and preserve it, right? So preserving meats oftentimes has an increase in histamines. Citrus fruit and dried fruits. So in your trail mix, if you've got dried fruits, that can be a culprit. Alcoholic beverages, because all alcohol is fermented and especially wine and beer. You have a really high amount of yeast in there, which usually there's some yeast intolerance when you get into out of hand histamine intolerance. Certain nuts, including walnuts, peanuts, and cashews. So if you're trying to eat more plant-based, just be mindful if you're doing like meat substitutes or cheese substitutes, because a lot of times those are made with cashews. I have personally had that issue of all of a sudden I'm itching everywhere. It's because I've eaten a nut cheese made out of cashews. Avocados. Avocados are actually what's known as a histamine liberator, meaning that they allow the histamine and the mast cells to just sort of run wild through your body. So do spinach, tomatoes, chocolate, dairy, eggplant, and sometimes lemons. So really tough because you think of those as being staples in a vegetarian diet, that Mediterranean diet that I mentioned. But if you're having histamine intolerance on top of it, you may have to be a little bit more rigorous in your diet selections for at least four weeks to get these to come down. And then you can kind of ride that train of having an anti-inflammatory response in your body. Because if you're having a histamine response, you are inflamed at a cellular level. One of the supplements that I like for that and treating the histamine response are nettles. You can often get those in a tea or you can get them um, freeze-dried in a supplement as well as quercetin. Quercetin is actually um, found in many foods. It's found in fruits and vegetables like onions and cauliflower, apples, lettuce, and chili peppers. So if you think about um, the color white in terms of fruits and vegetables, so apples, cauliflower, onion, again, um, if you consume those on a regular basis, you can get some nice anti-inflammatory quercetin in your diet. And then the last part of the root cause systems that we want to address is the gut, right? There's a growing experimental and clinical evidence for strong interaction between immunologic processes in the gut and endometrial lesions. In a nationwide Danish cohort study, a 50% increase in their risk of inflammatory bowel disease was found in women with endometriosis. So remember I said before, sometimes you get the diagnosis of IBS or IBD years before you get the actual diagnosis of endometriosis. It's because of the link between the gut and the lesions themselves. So there's also a hypothesis that the gut microbiota may be involved in the onset and progression of endometriosis. And again, this is a hypothesis. This isn't something that's been proven, but um, some of the studies that have suggested this are pretty intriguing when you read them. They specifically look at hypersecretion of insulin that results in essential fatty acids being reduced. So those good fatty acids that we want being kind of capped off by an inflammatory response of too many bad carbohydrates and how the microbes in your gut are responding to them. So if you've ever done keto or you've heard somebody talk about the keto diet, which is all fat, 
they talk about the keto flu. <laughs> and in the keto flu, it's the first 24 to 48 hours where basically what's happening is all of these microbes in your gut that break down fat have been sleeping. If you've been on a high carb diet and the ones that have been breaking down carbohydrates are been on overdrive. And so there's kind of this reversal pattern and you feel like crap as those microbes are dying off and waking up. It's kind of like this mass destruction that's happening in your gut. And this is kind of one way that I can help you to understand what's happening when you eat um, too many carbs and not enough good fat. So we need a balance of them, okay? Especially when we're trying to get pregnant. Unless you have some severe diagnosed abnormality where there is a specific diet that works for it, my general rule of thumb is as many colors of the rainbow as you can with vegetables and fruits, meat as medicine only in clear sources, limiting dairy, plenty of water, no alcohol, limiting caffeine, and then of course, limiting certain foods if you know that you have intolerances or like we talked about the histamine intolerance. Okay. That was a ton. I hope you're still with me. Again, you can find all of this information on the blog post in detail that will go with this. Um, as you know, the show notes are just kind of, if you need to go back and listen to something, they have the timestamps, which is great. But sometimes we want the whole thing written out with the links to the studies. And you can find that in the blog post. If you go to ladypotions.com and just use the little search button there. If you don't see it um, under latest episodes, if you're listening to this later, just search endometriosis and it should come up. And any of the supplements that I have mentioned on here, you can find on my full script dispensary. And that is a really neat thing that I've just started because you get 20% off all of your products. You're allowed to search for anything that you want on there. And then the 15% of the remaining profit is actually going to go to Farmer's Footprint, which is my favorite charity. This nonprofit organization in the U.S., actually, its whole goal is to retrain farmers in the practice of what's called regenerative farming. So rehabbing the land and farming without chemicals and genetically modified organisms. So really getting back to food as how it used to be with a full nutrient value instead of some of the Franken food that we are currently <laughs> eating in the US. If you're listening in, a, in another country and you're horrified, you should be. Um, be thankful for your food supply as we have really done a number on it here in the US. So part of why I've done this is that I want you to know that everything that I recommend, I am not making money off of. I recommend it because it's what I recommend in my practice and overall health. And I want to help the health of you as well as the next two generations to come. So you can get your supplements here inexpensively. Two other things that I didn't mention in terms of supplements are Chinese formulas. Um, I typically use um, a brand called Con, uh, Jade Disperse 1 and Jade Disperse 2 when I'm treating endometriosis. And I'll use that all cycle long if the woman is not trying to conceive. But if you are trying to conceive, we don't use it in the luteal phase. So once you get past that fertile window, these formulas would be contraindicated, but you could certainly treat yourself during your menses and the follicular stage and help to decrease those lesions while continuing to conceive. And the difference between those two formulas is basically one is stronger than the other. Disperse one is for somebody that has what we would call a very robust constitution, meaning you have a lot of signs of excess or you have maybe known endometriosis in the later stages where we really need to get in there and break blood forcefully. 
And you probably don't have as many of the deficiency symptoms like chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia. Now, in somebody that has really been worn down, that has been burning the candle at both ends, is experiencing a lot of pain and a ton of fatigue, and you're just kind of all in all a more gentle individual, small, like maybe less is more for you, you have stronger reactions to things, then I would tell you to try Jade Disperse 2. So lastly, I want to talk about treatments because there are options available to you, even though it seems like there are none because it takes so long to get a freaking diagnosis when it comes to endometriosis. I want to just briefly touch on what's available and what you would be presented with. And keep in mind when you go to an OB that's not holistically trained, they're going to offer you what they have. So you want to be armed with information about what that means, especially if you're trying to conceive, because a lot of these options are not going to help you if you're trying to have a baby. The first one being oral contraceptives or hormone replacement therapy. Now, many times as soon as a young woman enters an OB office and says, I have painful periods, it's the first thing they're put on. And lo and behold, we don't know that there's actually a problem until you come off of these oral contraceptives and try and get pregnant. The other option is laparoscopic surgery, which I talked about being the main tool of diagnosis is also the treatment. So interestingly, there's a little bit of a paradox with this that it is the diagnosis and the treatment, but it can cause more scar tissue. So if you have more scar tissue, you have a higher chance for developing lesions later on. So you certainly don't want to be having surgery after surgery. Now, that being said, a correctly timed laparoscopy could help your fertility. So let's say you've been trying for over a year, you've suspected this, your reproductive endocrinologist suspects this, and you really want to go through with a process like IVF, you could have laparoscopy clean out all of the tissue, and then you'd have better chances at assisted reproductive technologies, and you might actually fall pregnant on your own in between then. I have seen that happen more than a few times in my practice, right? So this would be maybe if you don't have time to do the botanicals, maybe age is a factor or some other reason, or you really think that it's advanced and you want to go in there and check it out and clean it up, that could help. What you do need to know, though, is that the data from the Cleveland Clinic showed that endometriosis recurrence rate after laparoscopy ranged between 20 to 40% within five years following conservative surgery unless the patient reached menopause or a hysterectomy was performed. Okay, so hysterectomy, taking out all your reproductive organs, definitely not going to help you with your fertility. So, you know, it could help, but you could also have the reoccurrence. So I tell you that because all of these things that we've gone through in the past hour can help with reoccurrence. So if you did have to do surgery, I highly, highly suggest that you get on some sort of regimen, either with the help of your holistic practitioner, um, whether that's in the Western or the Eastern field or both to make sure that this doesn't come back. Another treatment strategy is an IUD, which is another interesting paradox of treatment because IUDs have actually been shown to potentially increase endometriosis because of their ability to create scar tissue, right? Just like a DNC could, there's this object that is inserted into the uterus to prevent pregnancy creates more scar tissue. So if you've had an IUD in the past, as well as you suspect endometriosis, Um, and you're having trouble getting pregnant, 
you would certainly want to speak with your holistic practitioner about ways to help with that scar tissue, which we're going to get to in just a second. But interestingly, the IUD, the Mirena, there is some thought that that actually helps decrease endometriosis. Now, Mirena is not copper like your other traditional IUDs. It's actually plastic. Um, So maybe it doesn't have so much of a chance to cause scar tissue. I'm not really clear as to why it would help when others don't other than that factor, but it's only been out five years. So the data is pretty limited as to why that would be a potential help if it even is. And then on the Western side, hysterectomy being the most extreme form of treatment, especially if you're trying to get pregnant, that's definitely not for you, right? But some women choose that, especially if their endometriosis is debilitating and they've tried all of these things. Um, They may just say, I need quality of life and I need these organs out. So on the natural side, you know, we have talked about a ton of botanicals and supplements, proper exercise, proper diet, avoiding epigenetic triggers like genetically modified organisms, pesticides, phthalates, dioxins. Um, so use natural tampons um, and you know, naturally detoxifying the body. These are all things that can help immensely. Acupuncture is amazing for endometriosis, especially for regulating the immune system and the inflammatory cascade that can happen as well as as the pain. It is um, effective at treating subfertility associated with endometriosis um, and achieving pregnancy. This is what I do day in and day out. I see it all the time. And basically how it works is increasing blood circulation. So to either break down those lesions or increase blood circulations to reproductive organs where it is needed and has been diminished from inflammation. Another option that I recommend is our Vigo pelvic massage or Maya abdominal massage. We did a whole episode on this as well if you want to learn more. That is something that I encourage my patients to experience. We have, we are so fortunate. We have a Maya abdominal practitioner here in my area. You can find one by going to arvigo.com, I believe. Um, it might be arvigo.org to search for a practitioner in your area. <clears throat> the amazing thing is, is that they do the abdominal massage on you, but then they teach you how to do it as well. And then finally, one other practice that I find beneficial in detoxing the body and shrinking the lesions are castor oil packs. And there is actually a link in the show notes to learn how to do a castor oil pack on yourself, um, on your abdomen to help shrink those lesions. Okay. So that was a ton of stuff. There's certainly something in there for everyone to get started and help you feel empowered at managing your endometriosis, whether you're trying to conceive or not. And if you are trying to conceive how and when to do it safely. If you have any questions, please let me know. I hope you'll join me for the seven-day fertile reset. All you need to do is follow me on Instagram. That handle is Lady Potions, the number four and the letter U. Click the link in the bio and it'll take you right there. And that's also a great place to connect with me if you have questions. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Fertile Minds Radio, hosted at www.ladyportions.com, where you'll find past episodes, show notes, and free meditations. If you've benefited from what you've heard, leave a comment or review so it makes it easier for others to find this valuable wisdom. Let's help elevate each other. Thanks for listening.